It's a big week when RHAP is on the road in Chicago. Check out my live show from Chicago. That's going to be up on Thursday, Wednesday night. Shannon Gus is going to be live with you with Kelly Wentworth after Survivor. And we preview the Dondi finale with Dealer No Deal Island host Joe Manganiello all right here on RHAP. We know reality TV. I'm Sarah Carradine, podcasting from unceded Gadigal land. I'm Murray Forth. And this is Crime Scene, the true crime review podcast where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. Subscribe to our feed, robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed to get your true crime on Tuesdays. We also drop on the main feed on Wednesdays. And Murray, there's another great reason to subscribe. We're dropping bonus content into the crime feed only. Inside Job brings you conversations with people who know crime, the law, and justice from the inside. Our first episode, The Criminal, is in the crime feed right now. Before we get to today's property, we can have an update on a previous case that we discussed. Um, This was a good one. This was a fun one. It was uh, the (laughs) dropout (laughs) episode. Uh, We have an update. Sunny Balwani, the partner of Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, fame uh was convicted of 12 charges of fraud in federal courts earlier this month and if you remember holmes was convicted of only four counts um so uh you can go and hear our coverage of the case uh we did the we talked about a little bit about the documentary the inventor the hulu series the dropout and it's on our episode six of crime scene if you haven't already checked that out um so sarah what are we talking about today Well, we've had lots of requests for this one, including from Heather and Joelle. So thanks, everyone. We do appreciate your suggestions. And as you can see, we listen to them. So let's open today's file. We watched Girl in the Picture on Netflix. It was directed by Sky Borgman, and we've seen her previous films, uh, Dead Asleep and Abducted in Plain Sight, among them. So we were anticipating something quite good. Uh, Joining us, who better than a person who's been with us right from the start? She brought us Shop Doctor in Episode 3, and she's back to help us untangle this dark cat's cradle. Debate coach and podcast host, the antisocial extrovert, Latonia Starks. Welcome, Latonia. Hi. It's so good to be back with you two. I'm very excited to talk about this today. So to the crime, they're going to be serious spoilers now. So if you're intending to watch the documentary first, you need to hop off. And join us um, again afterwards. And I just want to add, like, seriously, it, you do n- probably not want to be spoiled on this. I, I would say just up front going into this uh, documentary, it's best to go in blind for me. So a little uh, hint at my recommendations there. This thing mm-hmm. has more twists and turns than the Autobahn. You all are going to want to go and watch it before you listen to this podcast. And I, I third that recommendation. So, so if you've already watched or if you're just uh, being defiant and you want to listen to us before watching it, strap in. Franklin Floyd kidnapped Suzanne Marie Savakis when she was four years old and raised her as his own daughter while sexually abusing her. 
He led them on a life of moving around with many aliases as he was on the run from law enforcement. Suzanne, sometimes called Sharon or Tonya, was made by Floyd to work in strip clubs and at sex parties when she was a teenager. She had a child when she was 18 named Michael, though Floyd was not uh, Michael's father. Floyd married her and moved them on yet again. He kept control of Suzanne by never leaving her alone with Michael. In 1990, when Suzanne was 20, Floyd killed her in a hit and run. Michael was fostered by a loving family who were preparing to adopt him four years later when Floyd abducted and killed Michael. Floyd was finally arrested, but he couldn't be charged with Michael's murder as his body has never been found. But he was convicted of kidnapping Michael and was serving a 52-year sentence when he was linked to the murder of Cheryl Ann Comesso, one of Suzanne's friends from the strip club, who had disappeared in 1989. After her body was discovered in 1995 and Floyd was convicted of her murder, he was given a death sentence. In 2014, he finally gave the FBI Suzanne's real name, and in 2015, he finally admitted to killing Michael. Floyd remains on death row and is now 79. And if you've seen the documentary, you will know that that is a quarter of what was going on with this terrible, terrible man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is one of those documentaries where it's uh, definitely a trigger warning for like sexual assault, child sexual abuse, murder, kidnapping, child murder. <laughs> it is like it sexual runs, assault. Yeah. It, like all of it. It piles up. It truly piles up. So fair warning to our listeners um no graphic there's no uh real graphic images or anything like that so that's one thing you don't have to worry about but definitely just giving everybody a heads up yeah absolutely so i wanted to start first of all before we dig into details of the documentary and details of the crime because i know we all have a lot to say (laughs) but i just wanted to talk first in general about the layout of the documentary i've given the crime in its chronological order, but it's certainly not how we hear about it in the documentary. Latani, mm-hmm. what did you think about how the film jumped around in time? Did you always feel that you knew where you were situated? How effective did you think that was? So typically when there are time, when when there are going to be places where they jump through time, there is, I think, a much more successful way to do the title card uh, to allow people to fully understand. First of all, to not just flash it for two seconds, because I found that was really not enough time to get reacclimated to the state of mind that I needed to be in. Cause I found myself in different states of mind throughout different parts of the documentary. And it was like, how angry am I going to be about this thing now? How outraged am I going to be about this? <laughs> I need a little bit more warning. And I think that having a time <laughs> of art, uh, that comes up uh, that it holds for more than two seconds. Mm-hmm. Same is true of the names, by the way. I had to pause a ton to get mm-hmm. the names of people and people's names in this. Very important. So if yes. I had any criticisms of this documentary, I would say it needs to be run back through and taken up a level or so in terms of watchability, because there are just some things that you need to be able to navigate. They go back and forth through time, but using the same players and mm-hmm. using people who have multiple aliases. 
So you need to know basically the way that they did the timeline is what they were calling this woman, this uh, who is the, the victim that we talked about here, Suzanne, throughout the documentary. But we're jumping back and randomly in time. We go like from yeah. 2006 to 1973. It's like, what happened in 1973? When did we get there? Yeah. So yeah, I would say that that and then like keeping the names on screen for a longer amount of time or even having a timeline itself. I've seen documentaries that have edited themselves in chronological order, not in chronological order, but because they have a running timeline at the bottom. It, it, those visuals really give something to people who are trying to discern what's happening in a very difficult to follow story. I, I completely agree with that. There was a few times where me and James were watching and I was like, wait, what time is, what period is this? Like what time period is this? Like it, like it truly felt like I was confused as to where we were in time. And the reason why, like we really harped on that that like oh you should go watch it first type of thing like I think it's a good documentary but I think it's not as enjoyable once you know the outcome like on this this is one of those rare things that on the second watch I actually liked it less on the second watch and I was like oh wow (laughs) like um and not because of what was shown but more because once you know the outcome when they start to jump back and forth it becomes annoying actually uh at least in in my take what did you think sarah well i I like the order I, i do like the order of how they told it because i felt that it was as if we were the detective, even though there are a different number of law enforcement and a different uh, people finding out things. So we were given it in the order that things were found out, starting with the discovery of uh, Suzanne's body in 1990. So I, I, I think the order that they told it was really good, but I absolutely agree they needed to do much more work to locate us and take us with them and a simple thing, as you say, like a timeline along the bottom or just her her name at the time somewhere. The graphics were very arty, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it took away from our ability, I think, sometimes to locate ourselves in time. Yes, I think something where we could have definitely been able like a time marker because specifically there are are some specific moments so after watching it when you watch the documentary you're like okay there there's there are time points that stick out to you once you re-watch the documentary and you're like hey we're at this time period why didn't they just uh fully tell us everything that happened at this time period instead they went to this time period they jumped forward to this time period they jumped all the way backwards to the first time period and then they come back to that middle time period to add on to it and it's just like I feel like you could have you didn't have to break it up like that and there there's a, a few sections I was like I feel like they did not have to break this up like that yeah the the discovery that uh, that they had lived as as a father and daughter and this is what many people knew them as father and daughter they wanted to hold on, they, the filmmakers, wanted to hold on to the surprise that she wasn't his daughter 
for so long that when we got to the explanation of, of him being in jail at the time when she would have been born, it's a it's a surprise, nicely done, but I felt it was placed so much later because the filmmaker wanted to hold on to the surprise, whereas I think they could have given us that information earlier, we could have lived the horror, you know, otherwise you sort of have the horror retroactively. So I felt sometimes, although I did say that I liked the order that they told things, there were some things that you got the shockwaves of horror continually coming <laughs> mm-hmm. and they could have given us a little bit more clump the horror a little bit more together and then mm-hmm. give us uh, some some rest time in between i also thought this was a good documentary just to spoil my my overall mm-hmm. rating i will be giving it a high rating but that was one thing i felt was sacrificed to the art of the film was taking us with the narrative so let's um let's start at the beginning mari the way the documentary opens up, right? So it opens up and it's like, there, there's not many uh, like reenactments here, which we of course appreciate, but it opens up where um, ta- it was a talking head saying like on this day in 1990, three guys uh, were on the road, they see debris and then they find out that there is a woman on the side of the road. It looks like she's been in a hidden run. And so this is how we're introduced, uh, how the story opens. When they find out the the woman's name is Tanya Hughes, they rush her to the hospital. They're treating her for her injuries. At this point, she is still alive. Her husband, Clarence Hughes, then comes to the hospital to, to give more background on her. And then after a few days, she passes away. And um, it, it starts off like that, you know, and, it, and it's like it sets the scene of like, OK, it's this just a, it makes you think, OK, is this just going to be a regular true crime story really you know and but then it immediately turns to like you know she was at the time she was tanya hughes she was a stripper at passions i believe it was and when her friends heard that she passed away they tried calling her her mom and her extended family to tell them what had happened when they had called this woman who they thought was her mom she's like i don't know what you're talking about my daughter died 20 years ago when she was 18 months and then that's how the friends said like oh this is when we realized like we don't know we don't know her name and then it and that's when it like really like starts to to pick up steam so they open it with the mystery with the mystery first and and you know after that we 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 get the tanya hughes segment about her being um a stripper and we're introduced to clarence her husband is what they they perceive him to be i mean he is he's her husband and then they talk about michael and I I think I like this opening. I think this opening was very effective. And I think this opening is why a lot of people messaged us and said we should we should uh, uh, re- re- uh, review this because it's just it kind of starts off one way and then it just takes so many twists and turns. And I do think that this was a decent starting point. Uh, Latanya, what do you think? Yeah, I agree that it it hooks me uh, again. No, no uh, reenactments. Wonderful or silent ones that are very short. Love it. Uh, <laughs> it it hooked me right at the very beginning because you get kind of the double whammy of, well, triple whammy of this woman was twenty what twenty years old when she passed away, and it was tragic. And you know the nurses there said they suspected foul play. Um, then we get 
to find out that her name was not really her name. And then we find out that she has a son that we don't know what happened to. So very good kind of like three hit uh, way to get people into the documentary at the very beginning. The other thing that I liked is that they rely heavily on the people who knew her best. And two of those people are dancers. And I just think that it's cool to hear from people in the sex work community, but to kind of get an idea of what almost a slice of life. And it's, but it just seems normalized in this documentary, if that makes any sense. Like it doesn't matter that we're at a strip club right now while we're filming this, we're just talking to a person and choosing to believe these women. So I I enjoyed that part of the documentary as well, because the first kind of talking head that we get is this woman, Karen, and she who was, as Mari said, a dancer at Passions with who she thought was Tanya. And that's where we get to learn a lot more about Tanya, Tanya or Suzanne's relationship with her son, Michael, and just how much that child had gone through at the age of two was a lot I think um but all very good ways to bring people into a documentary yeah I think Karen uh here and Heather who was at Mons Venus the most marvelously named strip club I've ever heard of uh the the community and the sorority you would almost say of these dancers was really strong and I think that's a really good point uh they also this is where Cheryl uh the woman who Floyd murdered, and uh, finally he was charged with that many years later. They were talking about her. She had ambitions. She wanted to be a model. Suzanne, when she was younger, had wanted to go to Georgia Tech. So they were talking about this uh, life as a life of, uh, you know, smart women making their own choices and um, having ambitions. And the care that they had for each other because um, Heather does talk about trying to to help who she knew as Tonya, trying to help Cheryl, uh, and they knew far more than uh, a normal co-worker would know because they see each other with uh, in the dressing room. Uh, and to this day, both of those women are very affected uh, by the deaths of both Suzanne and Cheryl. Yeah, and it was Karen who went to DHS and got mm-hmm. Michael taken away. So that's a brave thing to do no matter what, because honestly, the last thing that you want to do for a child that you care about, especially is to see them in the system, but to realize that they're in a situation that is so much worse for them mm-hmm. and to get them out takes a lot of courage because he could have come after her. I'm sure he suspected yeah. her as the person who did it. Um, he could have just as easily did to her what he did to Cheryl later. Yeah. Um, so exactly. I just think that it was really brave of her. And then we meet the two of the most sympathetic people in the whole documentary, the Beans. So uh-huh. Yeah. Ernest and Merle. I mean, they're just perfection. Yeah. And this is what I, I definitely call like Michael's section here because like, once Heather does that amazing thing, gets Michael out, Michael ends up with the beans and the beans just describe how, you know, he was a very shy, like he was very different when he came to them and it just took a few days and he 
opened up and he was amazing and he was very lucky to be with them for four years but the whole time he was with the beans what was he going by the name at this point clarence clarence hughes the proposed dad uh was trying to get michael back the whole time and then somebody finally was like well let's take a dna test and then they found out it wasn't like uh michael wasn't his and so they revoked all the rights. I think I, I wonder like how at first there was like supervised visits. If the child doesn't want to go on the supervised visits, why why make them go? You know what I'm saying? DHS, they and there was very little said about them. But what was said was all terrible. First of all, <laughs> they said they they give the beans this two year old child and say only give him a bottle milk and some Pepsi. Give this two-year-old child Pepsi. That's what we've been doing. And yeah. it worked. And I love Mel. She said, no, I gave him a cup of milk. <laughs> yeah. He had a tantrum. And within a week, he was fine. He was fine. <laughs> so uh, weird, yo. It's very weird. And then to, to have a child, everything is supposed to be in the best interest of the children. Mm-hmm. So to have a child coming out, as Mari said, of those sessions and hiding, you know, all the beans would have to say is he hides under furniture and says that mean man, that mean man. And then mm-hmm. you would at, at least get supervised visits where mm-hmm. someone, could, you know, who is a professional could observe. It's the beginning. It, maybe the beginning of the story is the beginning, but mm-hmm. it's the very beginning instance in this documentary of an ongoing, and I'll continue to notice it, uh, to, to point it out, institutional failure from yeah. top to bottom. That happened in several institutions. Right. And here is like, like Michael, they did the right thing because once they found, found out that he was not actually his father, they revoked his parenting. But unfortunately, Clarence um, ends up kidnapping Michael and by, he kidnapped the principal principal. and Michael. And the principal didn't try to stop that child. I'm sorry. I'm going to be judgmental about this. But if I get kidnapped, of course I want to survive, but I'm not going to let you take a two-year-old baby that I know doesn't belong to you and you're kidnapping at gunpoint. At that point, whatever is going to happen is going to happen, and then maybe, hopefully I'll get to heaven. Who knows? But, like, I just, I can't see being a school principal and saying, whatever it takes to save my life, take me to a tree. But take, take the two-year-old. Exactly. exactly. This is J- James David. We don't have any um, contemporary uh, interview with him, but he was interviewed at the time, and he was outraged at being tied to a tree. I thought you should be much more outraged that this man has a child that doesn't belong to him. Right. Yes. And I think the reason why we're, like, harping on this is this is the first time where we get uh, the time jump. And this is one of the, the times where I'm kind of like, it wasn't as egregious as some as later, like some parts later in the, the series. So let me talk about how this part I liked and maybe a part I didn't like. So from the principal getting taped up to the tree and Clarence running off with Michael, they did everything they did. They put out a, the bolo. They were looking. They brought in the FBI. Um, Sarah, what's the name of the FBI guy that we we got? John Fitzpatrick. Yeah, he was amazing. And he was um he said like all of the the facts that we know as true crime professionals like or podcasters, uh you got to if you get the child, don't get the child within the 2 days, 
your cho- your chances really plummet after that. And then he even says, like, they talked to a profiler and a profiler said, like, you have maybe a week tops because after a week, um, Michael will be an inconvenience to Clarence and he will more than likely kill him. And it, this part was really sad because you, it was all over the news and went national. Like they're looking for, he went, he was on the FBI's most wanted list. They had his aliases, all the different aliases, and they were, they were looking for him. And this is where the childhood friend, um, Sherry, uh, what was Sherry's last name here? Sherry Fostenberry. Yes, Sherry. Whoa, shoot. No, was it Sherry? No, no, I'm sorry. It was, it was, Jenny, Fisher. It was, Jenny, it was Jenny Fisher. Yeah. I apologize. It was yeah. Jenny Fisher who was the one who saw, um, she was being called Tanya Hughes on the, the news, and she said, Mom, Mom, they're calling this lady Tanya, but her name is actually uh, uh, Sharon, right? Or Susan. Sharon. Guys, there were so many aliases. Yeah, let's take a quick second to get all of the aliases out there so that you know we're talking about either Floyd, who is the person who perpetrated all of this, Mm -hmm. or Suzanne, who was Mm -hmm. his victim for her entire life. So Suzanne's aliases are Sharon Marshall, which she primarily goes by when she's young. And living in, I believe, Georgia with uh, her quote-unquote father, and uh, she is in high school. So when you hear Jenny talk about her, you'll hear Jenny say Sharon. Um, Then we have Tanya Tadlock. uh, Tadlock isn't really used, um, but Tanya Hughes is. So the name Tanya is what she danced under. Um, As for Floyd's aliases, we have Trenton Davis, Warren Marshall, Clarence Hughes and Brandon Clea Williams. So he was Clarence Hughes, I believe, from the time that Sharon was in high school to when Sharon became Tanya. And then he was Brandon Clea Williams when he first kind of came into the story of Tanya's life at all and met her mother. Yeah. And the yeah. thing, she was Tanya Tadlock so briefly because. He changed their names and then married her, and, and married she her, became right. yeah, yeah. She became mm-hmm. when they were on the run. Yes, yeah. And I and I just want to and and thank you. I just want to point it out. This was the one transition that I thought it was the first one. I was like, this made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So when Jenny um, saw her on the news, they reached out to the FBI and they're like, "Hey, you're calling this girl Tanya, but I knew her." as Sharon Marshall. And when we hear that, we then go, we get a glimpse of Sharon in high school. And this is a very good part. If if there's any part that I think really um, highlights the victim here so that we don't forget Suzanne is the victim here. This was the part. This was such a great part. It talks about her being in, in high school, talks about her being an overachiever and, and graduating and all of that. Um, and I like this part. And I thought this part was good here. But I did not like the transition after this, or I didn't like uh, some transitions after this. Sarah, how did you feel about some of the the jumping around parts? And were there any parts in particular? Because we can jump around here too. Yeah, we're we're not going to go in in order like we said. Mm-hmm. Um, but where where were the parts that that you thought were egregious, or is that just me and Latanya? Did you enjoy the twists and turns? 
I, I mean, I, I do think that the order that they told it in was was good and valid, and it's as if you're discovering along with them. What mm-hmm. my critique is is that they don't give us time or enough of an indication of when we are or where we are. Okay. So some either uh, stronger narration or, I mean, we're so visually literate now, 2022, give it to us on the screen, give us a date, give us a time. I've seen there's a wonderful um, series at the moment, a uh, mockumentary called Players, which is about uh, gamers, and they just mm-hmm. simply have a a block that runs backwards and forwards over a timeline of dates. Mm. Very, very simple. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that that's what they should have done, but there yeah. are simple ways to do it. So I think the order that the story, so um, to be clear, the order the story is told in I think is good, but our situation in time as we watch it could have been uh, stronger. I agree with you about this uh, high school. So we've gone from this uh, this woman who's died the mystery about her name. Ah, no, she's she's Sharon. Okay, so now we know who she is. She's Sharon, as yeah. far as we as we understand it. We hear from her her classmates, who thought she was wonderful, are still very affected by her death. And then later, we do hear of the home life from her friend Jenny Fisher, who goes to a sleepover, finds that the the house has no doors. The house has only sheets hung up in the doorway. Mm-hmm. And red flag. Yeah, red <laughs> flag, a red flag. Uh, and her friend Sharon's apparent father walks in on them as they're changing, carrying a gun, mind mm-hmm. you, and comes back later and tells Jenny to put, put a pillow over her face and she hears him raping her friend who comforts her. Sharon comforted her after the rape, and it's it's very hard to listen to, and you can see that she is affected to this day, as why wouldn't she be? I found this section, uh, when they came to it, they, they put that in later, uh, very difficult to watch, mm-hmm. but told in the – I thought it was told in a very – like it was told in a very simple way. Uh, what did yeah. you think, Latanya, about this high school section? I thought it was really effective. Uh, in several things, as Mari said, highlighting the victim here and just giving us a, a dose of what we'll get for the rest of the documentary to kind of tell us exactly what it must have been like to to live her life. You know, it just seemed horrifying. I was never allowed to go to sleepovers when I was in school. My grandmother did not allow it. Um, and then I hear story like all of these sleepover stories, and I understand why as an adult. Mm-hmm. But I didn't when I was a kid. The fact that this uh, that uh, Jenny's mother was so hesitant to let her, you know, go and said, "Don't tell your father," because the first time he Floyd ever met Jenny's. Jenny, her parents, he asked Jenny's dad for money, which is just really out of characteristic behavior for someone who isn't just like antisocial. I thought this this segment was really powerful where Jenny starts to talk about, uh, to recount the incident that she's been grappling with since she was 15 years old. You know, this is something that clearly she still sees in her head. And to just think, of 
coming into a house with no doors when you have, you know, young uh, people in the house, privacy is so important. Uh, Privacy just in general for anyone is so important, but especially when you have young, like developing people in the house, Mm -hmm. Um, privacy is very important. And the idea that there's no doors anywhere, major red flag, as Mari said. And then this woman Jenny has to lay there and in fear for her life and her best friend's life as well and listen to her friend be raped at gunpoint. Yeah. It's just Uh, wild. It is wild. And I will say that part was very like poignant and all the things you said, uh, both of you guys said, but I thought it was misplaced. I really was like, we're presenting it as if it was with that high school stuff. It was not. And that's what you're right. It really that when I on the rewatch that really kind of frustrated me because when when we get the high school segment we get the high school segment we get the friends it was so nice and then it it it's capped with Jenny Fisher talking to the police and the police are like oh you know this is his wife and Jenny's just sitting there like no that's her father that's her father I don't know what you guys are talking about and then the the police officer no sweetie this is her his wife they were married and jenny's just sitting there like she tells us to camera shock like they had a completely different picture of sharon than i did you know and then we go on um a tangent about like the police officer is is like uh okay so we knew that's not her her um name and she had an alias so we checked floyd's background and they and and blah 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 and um, I'm, I'm just kind of explain this in a sense that that makes sense. But like we go off on the different tan- tangent, like we we we're introduced to Tanya. We're, we're introduced to her leaving, saying she's going to go have the baby in Arizona. She can't go to Georgia Tech because she got pregnant. And we get Tanya and we get this whole story. But by the time they come back and then we go to the rape with uh, Jenny and we talk about the rape with Jenny, it felt out of place and then not only did it feel out of place is like did you make Ginny act when she was talking to the police officer in that situation where she was like I was just so shocked I was so shocked like you know um, why would Clarence marry his daughter but then boom later on we get the rape scene and she's talking about how it affected her her whole life a little bit later boom she's at trial and she's like he was a monster and I couldn't wait to put him behind bars and I'm just kind of like I don't like that I don't like that narrative storytelling in a documentary like if this is your if this main person is a witness and she's talking to us straight at the camera I don't know if I like that they're telling her okay well put yourself in this mindset when you were in high school and tell us this section okay and now this section and now this section does that make sense am I rambling here no no (laughs) I I totally get what you're saying I think that the interview was probably conducted in a way in a completely different way than how it was presented to us um, temporally in Mm. the documentary. So I think that this was probably an interview uh, that was done with Jenny where they tried to stay within the confines of some type of time, like linear timeline, but then they took parts for their own narrative storytelling purposes they just distributed the parts of her interview in different places. And I agree. it does seem to, um, now that you're saying it, because I do agree, it was a lot more tedious to watch this documentary on the second watch. 
part of that could just be because we're podcasters. And so we are like at that point, not enjoying what we're watching anymore. We're just taking notes and paying as much attention as we can. Um, but you know, it was more tedious to watch on a, on a second watch for me because of things like this, uh, because it would be great if we got these women and what they have to say about um, Sharon or Tanya, but grouped in a way that makes sense on some type of timeline. And if mm-hmm. you are going to jump around, then make sure you have a more important end goal than setting up this kind of revenge narrative for a woman that we can't even know if that was her true motivation for, you know, like testifying against Mm -hmm. Floyd ultimately. But that's what Mm -hmm. it looks like in the way that they've edited it. I I think the story of her testifying at the trial is in the right place because it's when he's been arrested and uh, her, her testimony is really important. But I agree with you. I think the story of the rape and her witnessing it and the effect it had on her belonged back in the uh, high school section. And I'm just going to pause here and say, you know, yet again we see the ripples out from crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, she herself was not uh, raped, but... It's a double thing of witnessing it, fearing for her life, wondering if she would be as well. It's actually still sexual assault it's on still Jenny. still sexual assault. Yeah. And she never told anyone. Mm-hmm. And to carry that with you, to be put into that position by anyone, to not speak, you know, Heather and um, – and uh, Karen, our dancers also have regrets mm. about could I have done, could I have stopped it? So the ripples out of all, I mean, the, the hideous crimes of this man, but the fact of how how people are affected, which is why to hear that someone like Karen did speak out about um, about Michael and and went to the DHS is really fantastic. So do speak out, everybody. <laughs> don't yeah. don't, be t- don't don't keep quiet out of fear. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, be safe and save your own life. But but to speak out is almost never the wrong thing. I think that wasn't the only time jump that I did not really like. When we get into, sorry, all of the names. Is it Cheryl's murder? Yes. Yes. Cheryl's murder. So again, we get that section after the high school about Tanya, um, her when she first becomes like a stripper down in Florida, when they're in Florida, Tampa Bay, Florida, and where she meets um uh <laughs> again, I'm like, dang it, my every time I need it, my my list of names is not there. Uh Heather, Heather. when when we yeah, well, yeah. we're introduced <laughs> to Heather at Mons Venus talking about Tanya and her first, like, what we understand is Tanya's first experience being in a strip club and then being forced to uh, have, you know, work as a sex worker uh, by, at this point, Clarence now. We, like, we get a glimpse of Cheryl. They tell us about Cheryl and how Cheryl was a dancer there and all of that. And then it just kind of like this section just ends with them leaving Tampa Bay. And then we come back like a little bit later. Like, again, it, it, like the jumping around, it, it works the first time. It truly does. But it just seems like 
The second time, it, it doesn't. Um, the the only thing that I really liked from this section here, because they they because they couldn't reveal to us Cheryl's murder at, at first, because that's what it is. This is this section is kind of like it's trying to introduce the concept of Cheryl, but it's not. They they don't want to reveal that she has been murdered and that he murdered her until later. It kind of feels like a little bit of filler, because. I mean, I guess the most we learn from this section is that like Clarence is still a dick. He's, you know, making her um, p- perform sex work. We do meet the babysitter, yeah, Michelle, Michelle, who I loved her. Yes. Yeah. She was so animated. She was Michael's babysitter um, and all of that. And it was just like this section with without Cheryl's murder really kind of was just like, eh to me you know michelle is the one who accidentally sees um clarence puts in a he puts in a tape to record wrestling yeah 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 and uh, you got that plug yeah in. the vhs tape to, to, to record some wrestling but on that vh vhs tape is cheryl and tanya like topless topless dancing yeah. around yeah and at this point uh, the, the, they still think that she's his daughter. They think yeah. she's his, his daughter. So it was very weird. That gets around. Cheryl disappears, and then they leave. So, d- am I alone in this? Did no. you think this it, section was necessary? It, it, I think it was necessary. I just think the placement is wrong. It would have been so much easier to stay with Jenny in 1994 because it, it we get this tiny section and then we get the section about the sleepover and it yes. seems like an mm-hmm. interruption i think mm-hmm. because it doesn't make sense where it is yeah for for me what works with michelle is we meet michelle she's the babysitter she loves she loved michael uh she used to see cheryl and it's her admiration of cheryl this beautiful cool girl who would wave to her and she was a young a young teen, a tween girl with the, getting attention from this, you know, this glamorous, uh, beautiful woman who had her own car and just seemed very cool. So we get all that. And I think then when she, when she returns to the narrative, when she identifies from a photograph uh, with Cheryl's body on the bed, when she identifies the bed as the bed in the, um, in the trailer, uh, that uh, Clarence and Tonya were living in and Michael, I thought that was an example of using the time really well. So we meet Michelle, we love Michelle, and then later she has a material piece of evidence mm-hmm. when it's time to give it. So there were times when the jumps absolutely worked. For me, what, I mean, I got a real idea of Cheryl. She wanted to be in Playboy. She wanted to be a model. Uh, and that was one of the ways that Clarence uh, said he would film her in order to send it off as an audition to Playboy, which, of course, he didn't do. The argument that Heather sees between the two should have been in this section, Uh, Clarence in his car Mm. arguing with Cheryl and then trying to run over Heather, that should have all been in this section. Then some narration where Tonya and Clarence left and also we never saw Cheryl again. So Mm -hmm. just give us that, place it in time, so that when we come back to this extraordinary coming together of two separate jurisdictions to discover that a Jane Doe that one jurisdiction has is Cheryl putting a name to the remains that they find 
and being able to charge uh, this awful man and give him the death penalty. That was all told well, but tell me that at the time that they left, Cheryl also disappeared. You just have to drop it in and leave it there. Yeah, I thought I missed that. I was like, I didn't even, I did not realize until they came back that she was, you know, that she was dead. Like I didn't, I did Mm -hmm. not know that. I didn't know that she had disappeared. So yeah, it was a, it was a a turn in the bend there um, that I was just like really, really kind of confused about. And I agree. Like I feel like they could have gone in the sense of like a mounting continuous terror type thing as opposed to like a jumpy narrative. Because if you think about it, if you push, uh, Jenny's Jenny's section right up against the high school portion because then after she w- witnesses that rape they do eventually leave then you put put the the Tanya section like the Tanya uh, Cheryl Heather section including the 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 beating there that could have been good that could have like led it to like oh every time they're about to leave every they have to be on the run because something happens type type of narrative as opposed to a little bit of a jumping around here but i mean i i, I don't know if we're getting too into the read at the beginning because this is again still not even everything that happened so what yeah. what, what would just- you like to talk about next sarah like cuz i mean it just was like so many twists and turns here. Can I just say something really quickly before we move on to the next topic? I think that we can kind of sum up the frustrations that we've um, been venting so far about how this documentary uh, was presented to us and whether or not it was the most effective way by acknowledging that this is a documentary that privileged style over substance at points. And I have an issue with that Um, just generally when it comes to entertainment. I'd rather have substance than have have something that's overly stylized. It is a very inventive kind of way to think of it to have the timeline go back and forth, have us go back and forth in the timeline so much so that we can be like the detectives figuring it out. But you are sacrificing actually building in more drama by doing that. And I mm-hmm. think that this is the, the one of the issues I have with this documentary is the privileging form and style over actual substance and actual mystery building but by trying to be a mystery box of a documentary yeah i mean i think you're right and this is why i always loved it when joe fitzpatrick the retired fbi agent who is of course interviewed in a diner whenever he was on the screen i felt like oh i felt like i'd landed because i felt that he was going to give me the straight information uh, and he could really locate us, and he had a way of telling a story that it was very interesting for this law enforcement man. He was thinking of the story, and it must be said he's been carrying it with us with him uh, for his uh, career, and in fact retired. He said the two things that he never closed were who was Tonya, as he knew her, and where was Michael? And the fact that in his retirement, he came out of retirement to assist the forensic case manager, Ashley Rodriguez, who we meet later, who is with the Missing and Exploited uh, Children um, organization. And he was able to come out of retirement and assist her and, in fact, close the case. So I think you're right, Latonia, because that when we see Joe, it's really straightforward. It's a man sitting in a booth in a diner giving us the information uh and in a in a um case that he's really invested in should we yeah, go I on agree. to oh sorry Mary. 
No, no, no. I was, I was just saying. I agree. I could, pro- I could have probably sat there and just listened to the FBI guy. Yeah, honestly, I I've really never been all so excited to see stuff. a cop. Yeah, <laughs> particularly compared to the to the twin FBI agents we see later in their blue shirts. Oh my god, the twins love each other so much. They love each other. Oh, and then he said this. Oh yes, but it was so great because he said this. I mean, <laughs> they did get the information of who Suzanne was, and they mm-hmm. did. They did get him to confess to the uh, murder of Michael in a very clever but awful way of saying, oh, Michael was your your new Suzanne. Latonia, do you want to talk about motherhood and its portrayal throughout this um, I do. documentary? I would hmm. like to talk about that. So something that I saw come up in this documentary, especially as we head toward the end section, because, of course, we don't get a clear picture of the of exactly the magnitude of this man's ridiculity until the end of the near the end of the documentary but there is very much there are a couple running feeds that are going there's very much a hysterical woman kind of thing that shows up a couple times um once when um Mrs. Bean called the cops because she saw Floyd drive by in his van um, when he found out that he could no longer have visitation rights and the cops were like, you're just being paranoid from what we hear Sandra, Suzanne's biological mother say when she went to get help either at DHS or with the cops, they just told her, oh, this is a civil issue. You're married. You're going to have to figure it out. And that led to kind of a, it just kind of happened in the background. It wasn't something that I think was intentionally intentional, but there was the good mother, bad mother dichotomy that was kind of presented. So if people in the documentary yep. want the audience to think of, it seems to think of um, Suzanne's biological mother as a bad mother because she didn't do everything possible to well she lost her kids in the first place she lost mm-hmm. her three kids to the system and then when she got them back she let one of her he, she let he because he kidnapped all three of her kids yeah just dropped the, the her two twins off at a uh a charity Orphanage. home mm-hmm. and he took suzanne and when she got her other two kids back there was a question of whether or not she did enough to try to find her daughter. She says that when she went to the police, they said it was a civil matter because she was married to Floyd at the time. Um, I don't know how why that means that he gets to take a child that is not biologically his. Right. And adopted that child. A that's four-year-old girl. That's another girl. institutional failure here that mm-hmm. is just like, this wouldn't be a recent law because he was convicted of pedophilia back in the 60s. You mm-hmm. can't just take a kid, even yeah. if you live in the house with them, if you're not their biological father. Your marriage to the mother doesn't, matter, child yeah. doesn't mean anything legally. Mm-hmm. You've just taken a child. You dropped two of them off at the orphanage, and then you kept going with the other one. And yeah. she's a bad mother because she only went to the cops once, I guess. Yeah, and she and the, the he wasn't the father of any of those children. None. And they, I, I thought it was very interesting that they made it so that that they told about the biological mother and the biological father. They were together. The father went off to Vietnam. It was Vietnam, right? Yeah, it was Vietnam. Um, 
and by the time he came back, they were like, oh yeah, she had moved on and she like, they very yeah. much were like, oh, she definitely cheated on him while he was in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had two other kids by the, the whatever the man it was that I think she got married to after, after the her, original yeah. father. And then he was out of the picture too. We don't know where he went. So she she was found like crying in a, a church and that's where Floyd found her. And it's just like, I mean, I think it's heartbreaking. I think it's more, I think it's much more heartbreaking than all of her, her faults. You know what I'm saying? Like that, I feel like she's taken advantage of, like she was a a woman who was alone with three kids who was, who was uh, taken advantage of by a pedophile. And I think she just didn't know what was coming until it had already happened. Right. Um, So I I don't, I don't know if I want to fully blame her. This is, this is this fact that people say, oh, why do step, parents generally stepfathers um you know become pedophiles it's actually the other way around pedophiles seek to become stepparents stepfathers Mm -hmm. to gain access to children when he met um sandra suzanne's biological mother Mm -hmm. her children were in the system she was crying in a church he says darling i'm here for you What, what what's the problem let me solve it she tells him and he says, well, I'll solve it. Let's get married. Uh, and she was in a desperate uh, state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think to judge, um, here we have a surprising piece of information from Heather, Heather the dancer at Mons Venus, where she says, well, I was taken for nearly five years and my oh, mother, right. right? Like, where did this come from? <laughs> you were taken? <laughs> the, that was one of the biggest twists that, that I was not expecting in this documentary. When she said, I was taken, it is so matter of fact, just like I was taken when I was for five years, 1970. Mm-hmm. I was like, you were what and what for what? <laughs> I know. And even the documentary moved on was like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like her, just another her, Tuesday. Her point was that my mother, you know, moved heaven and earth to find me. Mm-hmm. And this shade on poor Sandra. Sandra, who yeah. looks like she's had we we meet Sandra today. She's yeah. not at the rededication of the tombstone. So when mm-hmm. when Suzanne died and she was known as Tanya and they realized she wasn't, they gave her a very simple tombstone that just said Tanya. And no dates or anything like that. So at the end of the documentary, we see the rededication. We now have her name. We have her dates. There's a photograph of her. Pretty photo. and Beautiful. Yeah, really pretty. And present are her biological father, Cliff, and her daughter, Megan, who she gave up for adoption. So yeah. Megan was her third child. Again, yeah. sorry about complication. She had one child at high school who was a boy who was put out for adoption. She had. We Michael. didn't get anything. We about did nothing him. about him. Nothing, nothing about the first child. Presumably, we haven't found him. Uh, we mm. have Michael, and we know what happened to Michael. She kept him, and then she, when she was pregnant again, she uh, was not allowed to keep this one. And she, it sounded like a privately arranged adoption because Megan's adoptive mother met the woman that we now know as Suzanne, and she says she offered to help her to get away from Clarence. No, she she just wanted to know, like, if she wanted to see her baby. She was saying that she felt guilty and didn't understand why she never said anything to her about. Mm -hmm. Like, she Uh, would have offered. But she never said anything about Clarence. Yes. Well, she also has some uh, harsh words for for Mm. Sandra, Mm -hmm. uh, which, yeah. 
Santa yeah, doesn't come off great in this documentary. And it's just yeah. one of those cliched tropes that I would like to stop seeing of the good mom, bad mom dichotomy, you know, um, yeah. the adoptive, he, he, um, Megan's adopted mom, good mom, Heather's mom, good mom. And we even have Suzanne is described as like the perfect mother, essentially. Yeah, to Michael. Mm-hmm. To Michael. And it's almost as if they had to like villainize one person in order to say this would have never happened if you had been a better mother. When Mm -hmm. the reason she ended up in that church in the first place was because she went to social services and they were like, honey, go to church. We will take your kids, but go to church. That Mm -hmm. was the, I'm pretty sure, illegal advice that was given to her. And so she went to church and then she was Preyed upon. Preyed upon by a pedophile mm-hmm. who stole her children. Yeah. What? Like, exactly. how are we making this woman? It's just, I'm not a mom. I've been a caretaker of kids. It's not easy to be a mother. Mm-hmm. It's just not. And you don't know what circumstances people have come from or are going through. And to just, I just hate this whole good mom bad mom dichotomy Mm -hmm. that is set up so much in the world because it doesn't make any sense like you're supposed to be some supernatural almost force who has endless time to give to your children or child and also be able to care for them so like if you're alone you've got to have a career i guess and Mm -hmm. so you're going to be expected to be perfect there too but if you're working does that make you a bad mom it it just doesn't it sets up all of these different uh, paradoxes that are impossible for living women to live up to or people who are caretakers or children to live up to. And we get that good mom, bad mom, good parent, bad parent dichotomy. And I just don't like it. I was very surprised at the the focus or the emphasis, let's say, that people put on Michael adored his mother. Now, I'm not a mother. But in my mm-hmm. experience of two-year-old children, yeah, <laughs> they uh, have no choice. <laughs> they adore their mother. It's part mm-hmm. of the biological imperative, you know, mm-hmm. so that they continue to live and thrive. I mean, it's not to say that Suzanne wasn't a good mother, but it was such a strange point to make. Make the point that she adored him, yes, because that's not a given. But it is pretty much a given that a two-year-old is going to adore their mother. But uh, not a mother. This is the other thing, too, uh, to your point, Latanya. Everybody has an opinion yeah. about mothers. Everyone yeah. does. Yeah. And opinions are like a-holes. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I it just, it was something that stood out to me. You know, some of the big things that stood out to me were obviously the all of the institutional failure that happened that we've been touching on at different parts of this discussion. The... Uh, you know, good mom, bad mom uh, kind of dichotomy that happens. And then just the the peril of having people like Floyd exist and walk among us. This story is probably far too common. And we yeah. just there are just lots of instances that we don't learn about. And And one mm-hmm. of the reasons that, you know, other than the fact that Suzanne was ultimately murdered. One of the things that kind of, you know, made people like us or like, you know, uh, maybe like a little further than us who are actually like internet sleuths, like Mm -hmm. really care 
was the whole title, the girl in the picture. You have this incredibly sad looking white blonde girl. Mm -hmm. And of course, and it seems to be with the exception of these three women in her life, these mostly men wanted like, you know, live their entire career to be able to figure out what happened to this girl, Mm -hmm. to be able to rescue or figure out if they can give some type of cosmic justice for this girl. And, you know, it's stories like that that get picked out and get the documentary treatment when there Mm -hmm. are tons of other stories that I'm sure are very similar that happen with black and brown people all every day. There's an Mm -hmm. Amber Alert in Chicago constantly, you know, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't get this type of coverage because the, you know, the, the value of the life isn't the same in accordance to some people. So I just thought that those three things kind of looming over what was already a very much mystery box of a documentary made it a a lot more weighty, especially on a first watch um, than some of the others I've seen in the past. When they when they do catch Floyd after him, like running around, he no longer has Michael, of course. Uh, They don't know what happened to Michael. They assume Michael's dead and they don't actually ever say, like, did he actually kill Suzanne? Um, From what I understand, did I miss that part in the documentary? They could not say without a a shadow of a doubt that he was the one who led to her that that hit and run in her dying. Right. right? Exactly. That's the assumption because she had the marks of a physical fight on her and uh, the doctor says an extraordinary thing, which was, you know, for a person involved with a vehicle, uh, she was in quite good shape. So they feel that there were other, they feel that he murdered her. He's never confessed it and it's never been proven. So the idea of getting justice for her, I mean, we are introduced late in the piece to mm-hmm. Matt Birkbeck, who's an author. He wrote two books about her. Uh, one is called A Beautiful Child and one's called Finding Sharon because by the end of A Beautiful Child they didn't know who she was. And to your point, Latanya, I hate it when they say, so beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a weird title for your book. Victims. Yeah. yeah. It's a weird title for your book. Yeah. It's another title. Especially knowing what happened to her for like 15 minutes, 15 15 years. And honestly, I honestly had, I guess it ended up leading to good things, but I questioned the motives of this author, Matt, um, for going and doing all of these interviews and learning literally nothing about Suzanne in any of the interviews. Just, you know, and, and that was what his stated goal was. Um, He never got the answers that he was seeking. He didn't find out her name. He didn't find out where she was from. He didn't find out whether or not she was murdered by Floyd. He just let a sociopath with dangerous psychotic tendencies talk about himself, which they Mm -hmm. love to do Mm -hmm. for pages and pages of a book. And it wasn't until other people and tips started to come in that that the book started to get a little like more notoriety that this led to eventually finding out who Suzanne actually was. But, you know, if your goal when you go to try to make a book is to help, 
you know, I discover a mystery of what happened to a horribly abused person that you call a beautiful child on your cover. And then you have basically nothing about them in your book because you just gave in to the, the, yeah, Mm -hmm. you just talked to the, like essentially glorified the abuser and the Mm -hmm. person who most likely murdered her. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, he sees nothing wrong in saying, you know, I saw the photograph and I was, he doesn't say bewitched, but I mean, it is, it's, yeah. I mean, he's an investigative journalist. Uh, I'm sure he's, he, you know, he's an upstanding member of the community, but it was a very strange interview and and it's a strange that he put two books out of it uh, and he went, as you say, to see Floyd and essentially Floyd talked on and on. Now, this wasn't highlighted and it's, we do not want to make any, let me make this perfectly clear, no apologies, no excuses because other people have this happen to them and don't turn out to be pedophilic sex abuse murderers. But Floyd was in group homes. He was small. He was raped. He was beaten himself. Full stop. That happens to other people and they don't turn into into abuses. Everyone in his family, um, all of the children in his family were sent to homes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we're not watching a documentary about any of them. Exactly. We got the information from these tapes that Matt Birkbeck made in jail with Floyd. They're quite hard to hear, mm-hmm. but he talks about it. But it's just this lines running along the bottom of the screen and nothing more. So that you either make something of it or you don't tell it. It was just so strange to dot in this information and then move past it. And that really struck me on the second watch. What do you think, Murray? I honestly did, like, I cannot tell you what was said, to be quite honest, because I'm the the type that I don't like hearing the, like, the serial killer's confessions and stuff like that, mostly because it's like, it feels like a lot of, like, stroking and stuff like that like I I do not like it and especially like Floyd stuff it seemed incoherent to me um he was it seemed like he wasn't really trying to give them any answers so the fact that he eventually did give them answers and that is how they were able to figure out Suzanne's real name and then he finally told them in in 2015 that he had killed Michael but we still don't have Michael's body or anything like that was kind of anticlimactic to me to be quite honest, I thought this whole documentary, we, we were introduced to so many people who were working on the case and for it to come down to like they really hit a brick wall. And uh, it took the book, Finding Megan's Daughter, and then finally, uh, just for the last time, just going and talking to Floyd to get her name was very kind of anticlimactic. That makes total sense, Mari. I think the the filmmakers, I think, were going for a dear Zachary here in terms mm-hmm. of Michael. Um, I don't know if you all have seen this documentary. I am it, not. It's okay. on my list. So I'm not going to. I'm not going to ruin it for anyone. But mm-hmm. I'll just say I think that's what they were going for, and mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think that it landed nearly as well as the documentary that you should watch called Dear Zachary. Okay, that's anything, as, that's as like coy as I can be. Yeah. <laughs> um, anything else before we get to our magnifying glasses? No, no. I, I do, my only thing is, is I want to say like it sounds like we're picking the documentary part because uh, we are, but 
I, all that to say, I, I I did enjoy the documentary, and I com- <laughs> and I completely understand again why we got so many recommendations to watch it. Like I truly did really like it. Well, do you want to start with your rating of magnifying glasses, Mari? We usually ask the guests first, but you've you've already started. Oh shoot! Okay, no problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no worries. I I'll give it a three point five. Like I I will again. We've watched so many things that, like like I've said on previous podcasts, that actually were better the second time around. That I do have to dock it for not being as enjoyable the second time around. However, that is not you know normally people don't watch documentaries like that. They don't normally watch them back to back in order to break them down and assess them on a podcast. So <laughs> I I did really like it, and the only thing that takes it down even further a little bit of a notch is like Sarah said, I would be I would get very confused easily where we were in the timeline because I like I could not I was like oh now it's ninety five and they found Cheryl's body like it was. Now we're in 2015. Like that was kind of not having the title cards up there long enough did really confuse me. Like I said, when we were watching it together, me and my husband were watching it, I was like, "Are we not in 1994?" He's like, "No, I think we're in 2002 right now." And I'm like, <laughs> you know, so uh, that that's that's where I'll dock it. So 3.5, really good, definitely rec- recommend. And Latanya, what about you? So it's a five point scale to half tense. Yeah, we we don't okay. yeah, we don't care. Um, don't say four point one. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was asking if it was yeah. half tense. Uh, <laughs> that's how we give speaker points in debate. Um, that's funny. So uh yeah, I like as a speaker point in debate person, I would give it a three point seven five. Probably, but uh, I think we'll, because we'll it's only it. no, it's only to it's only to half tens. So I would agree. I think with three point five, maybe four, just because of the anticipatory nature of this documentary for me. Mm-hmm. I'd seen this picture because they're so right. That picture of uh, mm-hmm. Floyd with Suzanne as a young child is so many places on the internet. Yeah. Um, that it, it, you're if you're into true crime, inevitably you're gonna watch something about it. But whatever I watched, I guess I completely forgot because everything mm-hmm. seemed like a huge surprise to me when I first saw this documentary. I would say that just for a couple things, plenty of documentaries editorialize. That's not what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to be objective. Objective filmmaking but plenty of documentaries are done for editorial purposes i believe that this one could have been i think it was but i think it could have been more effective if they'd done the things that we talked about with the title cards given us some type of timeline and not chosen to um to not highlight institutional failure that happened to um not kind of tell the story of Sandra, Suzanne's biological mom, differently. And then, you know, to just have this be such a mystery box of a documentary that I think it took away a little bit from all in all what it could have accomplished. I really like the documentary. I think Mm -hmm. we're just being, you know, like you nitpick things because you, you like them, you like them and, you <laughs> and you want to want try to understand be them more mm-hmm. and you want them to be better. So, uh, you know, I, I like this documentary. 
I hope people don't walk away from hearing this podcast thinking that that's not the case. Well, we hope they've already seen it by now. Otherwise, yeah. we've yeah. given everything away. Look, I I recommend this documentary. Yes, watch it. Or if you've already watched it, congratulations. Uh, well done. Mm. I'm going to give it three. Now we've said before that three is good. So yeah. when you hear me say three, it's not it's not saying it's bad. I think it's worth watching. I give it a three. I think the story itself is absolutely, it's a five out of five story. It's an extraordinary story. But I think that there are failings within the documentary that as a reviewer, as a viewer, great. As a reviewer uh, and doing this podcast, I have to dock it for some of the things. First of all, Latanya, I completely agree. The institutional failure, for my taste, I would have liked that highlighted. I would have liked a more acerbic look at the the many people who allowed this to happen, not only the people that feel guilty, like the friends and the other dancers, but the people who have feel no guilt at all, who are the ones they're supposed to be looking up. So there's that. I also, I probably would have been 3.5 had it not been for the final section, which we haven't discussed which is the laying and the revelation of the new tombstone. It's very affecting because it has her name, her face and her dates, as we said. But this last section is so long compared to the length of the whole documentary. And the shift in tone to a sentimentality I found very, particularly on the second watch, there was this gear change into sentiment, and it hadn't been sentimental up till then. It had been factual. We'd met really interesting people. They'd told their stories honestly and with emotion or with their intellect or however they'd told their stories. And then we get to this very sentimental, long sentimental section with the unveiling of the um of the tombstone. And for me, that really is a big dock because that's the last thing that I see. Uh, having said all that, recommend, go and watch it, but it's definitely not the best thing that we've uh, seen during our 18 episodes, Murray. So quick question. So you're saying you don't like the sentimental tone it ends on? I do not, no. Hmm. No. Why is that, mm-hmm. if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. It's a tone thing for me because I suppose part of it is the time spent on the tombstone. The tombstone is a fact, one mm. fact. And that Cliff got to meet his granddaughter, Megan, who then has a child. That's also a fact. But we spent so much time with people being really happy that she finally had a tombstone, really happy that I can now go and visit her there, really happy that there is, you know, an end to Suzanne's story. I just thought tonally it didn't fit for me. And I'm also not very sentimental, so perhaps I'm being a bit bit mean. But I'm going to stick by it. No, no, uh, that makes sense. I, especially since then, since you feel like, um, like it's really interesting because she's the main victim victim that we focus on, but it's like Michael dies, and it's just like we don't. What, yeah. what happened to Michael? Cheryl died. Cheryl died. They don't really care about what happened to Cheryl. Like, I, I, I get it. I get it. It was a, a very, very weird um, tone shift. Um, I, I mean, if you don't notice it, you don't notice it, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I just, um, I felt like the 
the documentary had dealt with a very, very dark, very troubling, very disturbing story, uh, which unfortunately is not a unique story. Mm-hmm. And then it was trying to say, but it's all okay because here's Megan and she's had a baby and she never met her brother, Michael, but she's named her baby Michael. And now Cliff gets to meet his granddaughter. And I was like, this is not the story. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the facts, but it's not It's not the story as far as I was um, concerned. That uh, makes sense. But that, uh, that, that's, uh, that's just me. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense, especially like the meeting of the grandchild, the the emphasis on passing on the name when again sacrificing substance for style the things that they could have gone into more which is why I said 3.5 instead of four that they could have gone into more are the other people who also died we we get more way more of Michael than we get of Cheryl Cheryl's story is basically non-existent Mm mm-hmm and that's the one that he's actually been sentenced for. Right. Exactly. You know, uh-huh. um, we don't give it given the death to, sentence for. Right. We don't talk to any of Cheryl's relatives or people who know her the other than Heather. So we we only see one side of her um, in this documentary. Mm. And we don't see that for very long. And it's in the way that it's that story has begun to be told seems like an interruption of the high school days of Suzanne. So that that makes total sense. And I I guess most people, especially people on Netflix watching true crime, need some schmaltz at the end of their documentary when the subject matter has been that dark. I will give you that. I will give you that. I mean, I know, I know why it's there. It's there yeah. to say, but here is the happy thing. Right. And, and here's Megan and she's angry, but she'll get over it. She tells us. And I thought, will you though? It's not like, interesting. And it's also not about, interesting to me. There's nothing mm-hmm. about this documentary to me that feels truly resolved either. Yeah. We've and learned because Suzanne's that, name. Yep. Yeah. And in, and we use it throughout this podcast because for so much of her life, she wasn't able to be called her name. We, we learn Suzanne's name, but we get, she gets no justice at all. Uh, we, the idea that they couldn't circumstantially tie a case together in the South to prove that this convicted murderer also murdered his wife, who also murdered his quote unquote son is ridiculous like it's just not i just it everything that happens institutionally in this documentary seems like such a a far step away from every way that the south normally happens i mean the florida georgia line is where this crime allegedly occurred and you're telling me that neither one of those states wants to give this guy the the needle I'm well, not technically, it should happen. I'm just saying that, like, that I'm not advocating the death penalty. I'm just saying that these people don't get any justice. Well, he did. He did get the death penalty in Florida for Cheryl. For Cheryl, I know. Yeah, he for did. Cheryl. Yeah, but I'm yeah. just saying that's just for Cheryl. That's for just Michael for Cheryl. Yeah. and Suzanne. All we learn really is Suzanne's name. Yeah, and and again, that might be where uh, the deficit comes from because, like I said, they. 
for Suzanne's hit and run, they really didn't, they, they, they told us about the extent of her injuries that the hospital saw and that they thought it was like repeated abuse. But then when she died, it's still like the only thing that we get is that flippant line by the FBI guy. I think at one point where they're like, we really had nothing. No, I don't, I don't think it was the FBI guy. I'm sorry. It was the attorney. I think when they first, when they caught him after, um, he ran away with Michael. They said that all they could get him on was the kidnapping of Michael, the kidnapping of the principal, kidnapping with like the the wedding, weapon. the the weapon. Sorry. So they they stacked the charges on mm-hmm. him for the things that they could, but they they couldn't get him on 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 Suzanne. They didn't have. They still to this day don't have Michael's that body. So that I, I, like I said previously, that's where it feels like that it's lacking, like the the end of the story. It's almost like this is still a um like a cold case in a sense you know well yeah i mean this this is why i find the tonal shift so so wrong because Mm. you are you you disturb us with this story leave us disturbed with our thoughts although latonia i absolutely take your point that there's a feeling like we can't leave our general audience you know uh in a disturbed and upset way so we're going to give them this kind of uh picture of the the new generation and the new michael and all of that but i yeah. i thought it was uh, uh disrespectful too strong a word but it was as if there was a forced bow being put on mm-hmm. um what is really a very sad and and very melancholy when i think about where michael is i mean he's somewhere and it's very melancholy to think of that poor little boy kind of alone in the earth somewhere um and but then I have a I have a darker taste, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to our recommendations. Um, Latanya, do you have anything to recommend to our listeners? A book, a podcast, a film? Uh, so I talked a little bit about Dear, as much as I can talk about Dear Zachary, because that really is a documentary that if you know anything going in, then it's ruined. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not even ruined. It's ruined. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been watching on HBO Max, I've been watching, um, Mind Over Murder, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a documentary about the rape and murder of a, um, an elderly woman in Beatrice, a very small, small town. And now they're trying to figure out exactly what happened and the, the local town production uh, like a local town community theater is going to do a play where they reenact uh, a lot of the police conversations that happened and courtroom footage and stuff like that. So that's an interesting way into a documentary for me. Um, I've been watching DB Cooper. Where are you on Netflix? Mm-hmm. That just, I think came out yesterday and yeah, those are, I hadn't really put together a list, but uh, if you like, true crime and you also enjoy um learning as much as you can about the mormons this isn't a documentary but i just find the mormon religion to be so fascinating that you know we've had the keep sweet and obey we you know uh that's like one of the things that people talk about right now there's a couple other mormon related documentaries on netflix you want to look at but if you haven't watched under the banner of heaven which is mm-hmm. a hulu series with um uh mm, Andrew Garfield. There we go. That's the one Um, who is just having like a great year in terms of Mm -hmm. acting. And he's playing a detective who is trying to solve a murder in Utah, very small town in Utah, 
with his native Paiute partner, um, who is not a Mormon. And it's just very interesting look inside the religion, inside of some of the um, the ways that fundamentalism changes the religion, introducing those ideas changes it. And, you know, it's a murder mystery story that you don't find out uh, who the murderers are until the very end. So I might enjoy that. Oh, wonderful. We'll put all okay. those in the show notes. Uh, Mari, do you have anything to recommend today? Um, I do. It's a little bit different. I'm going to recommend the YouTube channel, uh, Mr. Ballin on YouTube. It's this guy, uh, John, I think his name is John Allen. And he talks about like he, he does, if, if you were enamored by seeing the picture, like the girl in the picture and then hearing the backstory, he has a whole like a uh, playlist genre of like creepy photos where he, he shows the photo and he gives the creepy background story behind it. He also does like three places that people can't go that people went anyways, which is a really interesting series. Um, it is like a lot of death and murder style storytelling. Um, he, he's, he, his tagline is like, if you like dark, scary stories um, told in a narrative uh, form. This is, you know, this is what he does on his channel. So it's, uh, and he also has a podcast, the Mr. Ballin podcast. That's uh, Mr. B-A-L-L-E-N podcast. I was just Googling him to make sure, like, I, I didn't see any other controversies about, about him. He's a former Marine uh, Navy SEAL who talks about his time in the military. I checked. If he becomes a milkshake duck down the line, that's not my fault. I will, <laughs> we will we will re-edit the podcast as if we had never mentioned him. Uh, right. Thanks, Mary. That's great. Mm-hmm. I'm going to recommend an incredible podcast series, uh, which I, I just can't recommend it highly enough. It's called Bird's Eye View from Story Projects. There's a couple of uh, of podcast series called Bird's Eye View. This is the one from Story Projects. Uh, it's a 10-part series. It was a two-year project made with women incarcerated in Darwin Correctional in the Northern Territory. Uh, this is a men's prison, predominantly men's prison, and there's a small number of women in it. It's one of the best things I've heard in a long time, um, 18 of of the women at Darwin Correctional made the podcast. And you can hear our interview with one of those women, Rocket, on mm-hmm. Inside Job, nice. Drive-By Plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, at Crime Scene, we're eager to hear your feedback and suggestions for further episodes. You can follow Crime Scene on Twitter at Crime Scene, R-H-A-P, that's S-E-E-N, or email us at crimescene at gmail.com. Uh, Latonia, what have you got going on? Where can the people find you? You can find me on Twitter.com at LK Starks, LK Starks. And I, let's see, what do I have coming up that I can talk about? Oh, mysterious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I will be on the Blackbird podcast uh, with Grace, Leader, and the other Ariel uh, we'll be hmm. discussing that Apple TV Plus show. Um, it's about a young man who has to uh, go into a maximum security mental ward prison in order to find out the location of a young woman's body from a serial killer. And he, yeah, if he does that, then he gets time off, uh, like he gets, you know, time served and gets to get out for the crime that he committed. Um, so it's really interesting and intense so far. I think as of today, there are three episodes out. 
Uh, so I'll be talking about that show. I will at some point, uh, rap wise, have a follow up interview for Top Chef with uh, Chef Nick Wallace, um, who is one of the standouts and finalists of the show. We mm. haven't scheduled that yet, but I know that's something that I could at least plug. And mm. I think those are the two things I have going on for now. Oh, I'll be in um, the latest Renap. As this podcast comes out, you all will be able to listen to me on the most recent Renap, which I'll record tomorrow. Wonderful. Uh, Mari, what about you? Where can people follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at Mari Talks Too Much. That's two like the number two. And of course, you can catch me every week with the wonderful Matt Scott on the Wrestling Rehap Up podcast where we recap the highlights of the week in wrestling. And um, so go to robhasawebsite.com slash wrestling feed in order to subscribe to us there. You can also catch me uh, recapping and doing live feed updates for the current Big Brother season, Big Brother 24. I was just recently on the live feed update and I will be on an episode recap this week. So if you want to listen to my Big Brother coverage and you want to know when I will be appearing, just go and follow me on Twitter because uh, I'll, I'll post whenever that happens. So again, follow me on Twitter at Mari Talks Too Much Too like the number two. Sarah, what about you? Well, uh, you can follow me, if you like, on Twitter at Sarah Carradine. Recently, the amazing Matt Scott uh, mm-hmm. invited me onto the Pod Friends uh, podcast. So if you want to hear me banging on about rubbish, go and uh, have a listen there. That's also on RHAP. So next time on Crime Scene, we are covering Glad Beck. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a German-language hostage-taking documentary. Uh, you can do subs or dubs. We don't dub shame here at Crime Scene. <laughs> and Matt Scott's getting another shout-out. He yep. will be our guest. So watch it on Netflix and send us your comments and questions. Thank you, Latanya, for joining us. Thanks to Will from America for our theme music, Tricky Writes for the Graphics, and Scott St. Pierre behind the scenes. Until next time. Case closed. closed.